sweet as a nut. Just block out my ugly mug for a second. There we go. Sorry. Why is that not doing that? There we go. Sorry, I'm just trying to get set up here. All right, uh, three, two, one. Hello and welcome again to uh, Trademark Podcast. First in a while of us actually sitting down talking, although we are on Zoom, so excuse the shite sound. Um, joined today by usual contributors, Dr. Sean Byers, who's sitting in a drafty, echoey trademark office there in Belfast. If it starts raining, we're fucked because it's got a tin roof. Um, and also we're joined by regular contributor, Stuart McGill, who's over there somewhere in Londinium, over in London. And we're here today to talk about uh, a new book, actually, that um, Stuart spent a lot of time writing. Um, and we're going to put in the links where you can access this book. And it's a book around, uh, really interesting book. So I read it the other day, and I'm, we're going to talk about it today, about the 10 most common economic myths debunked. And it's a really important contribution to debates on the left about political economy, because it's a lot, trademark spends a lot of time doing this with trade unionists and with community activists. Um, the idea that people misunderstand economics is fundamental to organising on the left. Um, the neoliberal project's 50 years old, and in that 50 years, they've done an awful lot of work in convincing people how the economy works. And we've got a bit of work to do in deconstructing um, uh, the, how they how they managed to do that, and because they, they managed to create in people a common sense understanding of the world, which is entirely incorrect. And we've got to deconstruct that common sense understanding of the world. Counter-hegemonic, if you like, Sean, we'll go to you first. Why is it so important, and is it important, Sean, that we you know we debunk some of these myths around neoliberal economics and capitalist economics? Yeah, well, I think over the last twenty years, there's been some evidence of people beginning to question what they're being told about how the economy works. You know, through the austerity period, through the period of quantitative easing into the pandemic, um, and but there's there's still a number of persistent myths. Um, that continue to be used um, to con continue to be propagated by mainstream economists, commentators and politicians. And I'm sure between us we come up with a much longer list of myths that are used to rep misrepresent how capitalism functions. But what Stuart's done is taken 10 of the most common, the most persistent and the most harmful myths that, that we have um, because they obviously lead to certain conclusions and certain solutions about how to how to organize the economy in in response. Uh, so Stuart's taken ten of these. He's dismantled them one by one. And what I would say about the book is it's it's an exposition really of how actually existing capitalism works as opposed to how we're told it works by those mainstream commentators. So it's a really useful and accessible resource for workers, working class educators, organizers, all who all benefit from reading it. Yeah, it's really it is really useful. And that 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 is so important, Stuart, this idea of demystifying and making transparent what is opaque to a lot of people. Um, the idea of explaining how the economy, the capitalist economy, actually works. Because it has neoliberalism has been successful has it not in you know in creating that common sense understanding of the world that if you go into a pub and ask a bloke sitting in the corner who's got no arse in his trousers, what's wrong with the economy, he's likely to give you an answer. You can predict what he's going to say. He's going to say, oh, there isn't any money, there's too much debt, and, and the usual myths around neoliberalism. So um, how important is it, do you think, for the left to demystify, to debunk these myths? I think it's an absolutely crucial part of the mission, <clears throat> excuse me, even now, and Sean's right, you know, people are beginning to question this, but even now that general received wisdom appears in the pages of the FT all the time, just a couple of days. Somebody from the IMF was writing about the need to get basically cut spending, cut the deficit. We should no longer use debt to finance spending. When you look at this country, I mean, the OBR was going mad about this too. Look, talking about Britain here. The interest on the national debt as a percentage of the GDP is a little bit below the average it has been since the early 1950s. The OBR were going crazy about this because interest rates are rising. It's still particularly low. Debt as a percentage of GDP is lower than it has been for <clears throat> some considerable time. I mean, it's, it's risen over the last couple of years, but compared to the averages since the Napoleonic Wars time, it's still very low. But you still talk about this compulsion to reduce the national debt as if it will make things better in itself. Reducing the national debt 
the measures they took through austerity screwed the economy here and in Europe for some time. And one thing I might talk about a little bit later, America's growth at the moment is significantly better than Europe, partly because they didn't indulge in the ludicrous policy of austerity. When you but this, but this goes back, doesn't it, to your first myth in the book. Um, you've segued yeah. right into it, and that's the idea that we're convinced, and really it's been a really well-told lie that's believed by most people, and it's that the government should handle its finances as if it were a regular household. Those old Thatcherite myths around handbag economics that, you know, she ran the economy the way that a housewife from Grantham should run her household and all that bollocks. And it's a nice story. People understand it. Uh, and they're convinced, well, you know, you've only got the money to spend that you've taxed or that you've borrowed. And that's how governments work. But then when you and what you've done here in the book, of course, and what we've done on other podcasts, I have to say, when you look at the role of national debt or government debt, it has a really important function, doesn't it, in the wider economy anyway. So the idea that debt is bad is actually a bollocks, isn't it, at a national level? Because yeah, it, fun it functions. It functions as an important part of the capitalist economy. It's an important part of the capitalist economy. It gives investors a reasonably safe instrument or a set of instruments in which to put their money, part the money. Um, one thing too, Starmer said a while ago was that the debt, uh, our, our debt was dependent or paying our debt was dependent on the kindness of strangers because about 30% of the national debt is owned by overseas investors. This of course is total bollocks because these people aren't kind. They buy it because it represents a good investment. To be fair to Thatcher, don't get me wrong, I hated the woman, but I can see how she got the job. She came out with all that stuff to get elected, but she knew ultimately it was bollocks because public sector debt as a percentage of GDP at the end of her reign was about the same it was at the start. She was quite pragmatic. Just lately, there seems to be this kind of debt idealism which has come into play. And again, it doesn't bear any reference to reality, nor indeed to, uh, to our history, because like I say, well, I, can't, I don't want to give too many stats, of course, but I think debt's about 100% of GDP at the moment, which is historically high. But they never say in the FT or anywhere else that about 35% of that is actually owned by the Bank of England or other government bodies. So the actual debt, right, as a percent of GDP, it's nothing like the burden they say it is. It's a more difficult thing to explain than say, we can't keep on living beyond our means. The national credit card is maxed out. These easy sort of slogans that people like Cameron used to convince people of the rightness of austerity, it's much more difficult for us to go ahead and argue against them easily and compellingly than it is to sell the slogans. That's one of the big problems the left has. Yeah, it's, it's a really convincing story, Sean, isn't it? The idea that the only money a government has is the money it um, borrows or taxes from the population because it excuses austerity, doesn't it? Because the government says, well, look, if we want to spend money or invest money and build schools and hospitals, have a green industrial revolution, we've got to borrow money from the private sector or we've got to raise taxes. But that's not how government finances work, is it? No, and as you said, like we've seen how vicious austerity programs have been implemented across Europe um, on the basis of this absurd household public debt analogy that doesn't stand up in reality but it's something that many in the social democratic left bought into uh now that there's a debate there's debate over what austerity was designed to achieve um as a tool for transferring wealth from ordinary citizens to the rich it worked very well but if you're looking to assess it on its own stated objectives of balancing the books. You could say it was a failure. As Stuart has said, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that austerity actually destroyed the prospects for economic growth across Europe and increased the debt to GDP ratios in many countries because of how badly it damaged their economies, you know? Um, but at the same time, contradicting the narrative of austerity are the trillions of dollars that have been created by central banks. Uh, since 2015 with quantitative easing, but particularly during the course of the pandemic. And this money has gone towards propping up the economic and financial system, uh, as well as more or less directly financing the deficits of governments to enable them to increase public spending. Uh, so in Britain, the Bank of England directly financed <laughs> the mm -hmm. government spending in the Eurozone, the ECB did it through the back door. They didn't do it through the primary markets. They did it through the uh, through the back door. But essentially, it was the same thing. They created money and they bought up the debt of uh, sovereign governments. 
so that they could increase their spend and deal with collapsing tax revenues. Uh, but now the narrative is shifting once again, it's shifting back to this apparent need to reduce the public debt and restore so-called fiscal discipline among governments. And that's something that has to be contested. Yeah, that's uh, central, of course, to the European project, isn't it? The idea of these auto-liberal rules that come from the ECB, or you could argue from the from the German um kind of uh, auto-liberalism, the idea that, you know, we have to have strong fiscal rules to prevent government spending. But, I mean, one of the things, Stuart, that's always um, fascinated me is that if if governments, why do governments really persist with borrowing money um, from private sector through issuing bonds, which is what we're kind of talking about, rather than just printing the money, which is what they can do? Why, why do they bother going to the private sector to borrow money? Is it just a favour to their mates or what? I don't think it's just a favour to the Mets. It provides a means of actually exerting some economic control afterwards. So whenever you have, like uh, with quantitative easing, the Bank of England was able to actually buy a significant amount of bonds from the private sector to increase their liquidity. So it provides a means of some form of economic management. That's the classic answer. Uh, there are redistributive elements of it as well, because it does tend to redistribute money to their mates. Uh, but I think it's primarily a means of economic control at some point in the future. They do, of course, sometimes just print money as well. Um, Sean was quite right there. Whenever I think the bonds that were issued to pay for COVID by the British government, 99.9%, some absurdly high percentage, were bought by the Bank of England. Again, it's one of the many reasons why. Uh, the Bank of England holds such a large part of government debt. I think also building on what Sean said as could, well. Could, I just inter- could the government, if it wanted, just cancel that debt or roll it over forever and never pay it back? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's, not really de- so it's not really debt at all, is it? It's a fiction. Yeah, of course, they can just get rid of it. Yeah, it's not going to they're just The Bank of England's balance sheet will be affected by it, but at the same time, the Bank of England can just go ahead and print money, uh, which is what effectively they did here. I just want to get back to what Sean said a minute there. We have to remember this all applies to governments that print their own currency. The British government has maintained that luxury. The American government has that. The Greeks don't have it. The Irish don't have it. Anybody in the Eurozone does not have that luxury anymore. So this is part of the European project. Uh, You take away basically the politics from economics and you put it all down to the ECB. So that's an important point to remember. John, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, and it's just just on that. Just as the Bank of England... Holds a lot of what do you say, Stuart? A third of of government debt. Thirty. It's something like a third, yeah. Yeah, the ECB holds forty percent of sovereign debt in Europe. So just as the Bank of England could hold on to that debt in perpetuity or cancel it, um, the ECB could do the same thing. But there's this pretense that the ECB is not a political actor; that it only acts to control uh, inflation through the regulation of the money supply. Now, we saw that was a complete fiction during the Greek uh, debt crisis. But this is something that with political will, with some uh, changes to how the ECB functions, it could just hold on to that debt for the purpose of enabling sovereign governments within the Eurozone to invest in public services and the green transition to support their their citizens, to do the housing crisis and, and whatever it may be. But... The fisc- instead, the fiscal rules are going to be reimposed early next year. The European Commission has proposed reforms that have yet to be agreed by all member states. These reforms don't go nearly far enough in terms of allowing government sufficient leeway for public investment. But whether it's the old rules or the new rules that are introduced, they just simply won't permit the type of investment that's needed to restore public services, to repair infrastructure deficits, uh, to even boost the European production and the green economy. Um and this is bad from even Germany's perspective, but it's an absolute disaster in the making for the countries of the southern periphery that still remain highly indebted in relative terms. So there's a disaster coming down the line and very few people are talking about it. I think absolutely right. We have to get this debt genie out of the head and people do need to understand how the finances work. You look at the Japanese, I think debt there is something like 265% of GDP about 50% of which is owned by the Japanese Central Bank. Other things could be done with this money. Uh, And the debt figure is just one thing that comes out at the end of a whole series of economic variables. If people think governments need to act like households and they continue to think that way, we are screwed because the green transition will not come about 
uh, through the private sector, as again, we may have discussed before in the future, in the past. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I would love to continue talking more about debt because the, the big issue for us here over the next 10, 20 years, one of the big issues is precisely the kind of debate around where's that massive investment to move to a green economy coming from if, if it's not coming from the state. Um, I mean, the idea, I say this to people all the time, I was speaking last week at an event, that in 2011-12, Ireland put fiscal rules, German auto-liberal fiscal rules, into its own fucking constitution. I mean, it literally constitutionalised fiscal rules, you know, so that right to a job, no, right to a house, no, but fiscal rules, yeah, we'll have that in the constitution. I mean, putting into your own constitution, and you know, yourself in a neoliberal straitjacket, which determines what you can and can't do as a national government, and it and it makes a mockery of the concept of national sovereignty, of course, as you said, Stuart, the idea that you hand over the power of your central bank to some, you know, to the ECB, it really restricts what any national government can do. But anyway, we're going to come back to that topic, I think, of the role of the state kind of runs as a theme, I think, through a lot of the myths you're debunking here, because one of the, the lies told during the neoliberal period, which we, you know, is coming to an end, I suppose, we're in an interregnum between two systems and no one knows what the new system is going to emerge like. But one of the myths told in that neoliberal period about the state was that neoliberalism was about small states. It was about the state withdrawing and letting the private sector, letting entrepreneurs uh, bestride the globe and take control. Now, we know that's bollocks because the state hasn't shrunk compar in comparison to the size of GDP, but its role has changed. Its role has shifted and its, ro its role has shifted away from being a redistribu redistributive power for to, you know, redistributing capital, if you like, to labour. Uh, and it's become a servant of capital and one of the important stories one of the myths told around that is this idea of the kind of lazy nanny state the cumbersome state the state gets in the way the state's not innovative the state's not um if they gets in the way of the dynamic dynamism if you like of the private sector um and i know that your your myth four in the book which i'm jumping to the state never backs winners and only the private sector innovates successfully so um in your myth you talk about how actually the truth of that story not the myth is that the state's always been there as an innovator and the state's always been central to to promoting if you like new technologies and new forms of innovation and new forms of investment yeah it's been massively important you're talking about the internet which we're using to speak just now as the result of government research government scientists using government money uh, the book by uh, matsukato right the entrepreneurial state is actually very interesting i mean it can be hard going to a certain extent but hell we are not all about the fun, but she does make it very clear uh, that she talks a lot about the different attitudes to risk and uncertainty. In business, you have risk, but with uncertainty, you don't know where the money is going to go. You're not even really sure if you can get a return upon this. And big business does not like to do that, whereas the state is much better equipped to invest in what will be an uncertain a project with uncertain outcomes. So you look at the Internet, touchscreen technology. Um, a lot of this comes from state investment. Uh, you've also got to look too at the pharmaceutical sector, I think is important because a huge amount of pharmaceutical uh, advancement has been made with state money. I remember debating with somebody a couple of years ago about the need for basically pharmaceutical companies have to make money, otherwise we'll make no advances. Now, an argument against that, of course, is Cuba. And another argument, which is basically by any standard a pharmaceutical superpower, Another argument, of course, is that the state does pay for a significant amount. I think it's something like two thirds of the money spent on research, which has produced decent drugs, has been financed by, has come from the government. And of course, the vaccines for COVID, a huge government investment in that. And the private sector, as ever, picks up all the dough. It's important, isn't it, Sean, that we um, focus on the role of the state again. We said, again, we were talking, me and Sean were speaking at a week conference last week and central to kind of the discourse was the idea that I suppose the response to the collapse of 2008 and then the response to COVID was that the state was back in fashion again. The state was back in a big way. You could see the state acting to you know, to protect communities, to protect lives. Um, but it's always been there in the background, Sean, hasn't it, as an as an innovator and as a, as a long kind of a, a long-term funder of uh, innovation and growth in in, in manufacturing and, and in uh, research? It's, it's always been there. And, you know, particularly since the onset of the, the Second World War, the amount of state investment went in developing new technologies, out of which, like, flowed uh, new products that we see we see today. Uh, but the trend, that because of why it's become more apparent, I suppose, is because the trend over the past 40 years has been one of fallen private investment by any measure. 
but particularly in research and innovation, particularly mm. in the type of risk taking that uh, people like to associate with the private sector and that private entre- entrepreneurs, so-called entrepreneurs, like to claim um, for themselves. So it's a fallen a trend of fallen private sector investment, and the state has had to come weighing in in different shapes and forms, right? So whether it's uh, corporate welfare in the form of subsidies and uh, tax cuts, tax breaks to try to incentivize that investment, whether it's loan guarantees, it's another form of of de-risking, or whether it's just the state undertaking, as Stuart has pointed out, undertaking that research and development work. And then just handing it over to the private sector for the private sector to benefit. And it's happening across all sectors. And one of the really important things is that we're now seeing it in terms of the climate transition. So the private sector is not investing in low carbon technology. Uh, They're pouring all of their efforts into uh, fossil fuel projects or trying to develop technologies for to find a means of using fossil fuels in another shape or form, right? So in terms of the, the IRA, the industrial, what is it, the industrial? Inflation Reduction Inflation Act. Inflation Reduction Act, uh, or the turn to industri- industrial policy within the European Union. This is a major state-led intervention uh, designed to take the risk out of private sector investment in the green transition. And then hand it over to, once then, it's formed, hand it over to the private sector to profit from. Hand it over to them and they profit, you know, they, they can't lose, right? So mm. their investments are guaranteed. If, if if they win, they win. If they fail, they still win, you know, because it's, it's the risk is being taken out of it. I think it's important to look at one of the most successful companies in the planet now, the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. About 90% of the world's advanced chips are made in Taiwan by this company. Uh, And that was a straightforward joint venture with the company and the Taiwanese government, who basically paid for that company to be put together. So it's not just a matter of the state stepping in to rescue failed companies. The state in Taiwan and across a large part of the Asian tigers as well, so-called, has played an active role in incubating and developing, which are now very successful companies. Yeah, there's a lesson there for socialists, isn't there, about the the, the importance of, of state-led innovation in the green transition, Sean? Yeah, and I, I can't remember where it was published now, but there's, there's some interesting stuff that uh, has been published recently comparing the fate of China uh in relation to that of germany right so germany mm-hmm. has suffered a huge self-inflicted blow recently due by hitching its fortunes to those of the u.s empire they're doing its bidding by switching away from cheap russian gas um and that has accelerated a pre-existing trend towards the industrialization but one of the other big factors is that the german state hasn't been investing at all in research and development. It hasn't been in, like, putting any money or effort or resource into that type of industrial policy that has been seen in China. And as a result, uh, it's losing competitive and competitiveness in a huge way in relation to, to the, the Asian economies. Like, So there's a lesson in it there for so even some of the major European powers. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And it's really interesting to see how um, Southeast Asia, particularly how China and other parts of the world, uh, they're unashamed about the role of the state and the importance of the state in driving innovation and investment. And the, the West seems to have forgotten that. They're spending their time, as you said, um, you know, buying back their own shares through share buyback systems or simply not investing at all uh, and engaging in speculative activity through the stock market. That seems to be where most of their efforts and innovation and entrepreneurial endeavor are, are focused. Um, Stuart, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I was just going to say it's very important um, issue, and to a certain extent, it's hijacking the conversation, but it is the major issue around right now. There's another workers and students guide in this series called Socialism or Extinction, uh, which again I I put together uh, based on readings and writings over the last couple of years 
if you look at the introduction to it, there's something from the retiring FT energy editor in the United States. I'll send a link through to you guys and put it up for your listeners. And he says, basically, capitalism will not solve the problem. And this is the FT's energy editor. We need to realize massive deficit spending will be important for this and that we need to focus effort in this area. Regarding the whole issue of share buybacks, etc., this ties back to the second myth. Was it the second myth? I can't remember. Uh, but then this is myth three about high taxes screw up economic growth. Now, there is no evidence that high taxes for wealthy people screw economic growth, whatever. In fact, the evidence suggests the opposite. But one of the reasons why the Americans in particular had very high taxes or marginal tax rates on big earners in the post-war period was not to repeat the mistake that they made in the 1920s whenever they were allowed to keep a huge amount of money and they pissed it all away in stock market speculation, which eventually screwed a large part of the economy and actually gave us the Nazis. So if you have very low taxes on high earners, uh, then rather invest it in the company, they'll piss it all away on share buybacks and paying themselves a whole lot more. So it's not just a redistributive aspect that drives the need for high taxes. It's to actually drive the right behaviours. And that's yeah, it's, it's really important that when we deliver political economy training, one of the kind of key themes of our of our analysis is the crash of eighteen seventy three, the crash of nineteen twenty nine, mm. the crash of two thousand eight. All of those crashes were driven by speculative behaviour, which in turn was was driven by the fact that wealthy people had too much fucking money. And the myth is there's another myth, I suppose, is that wealthy people are really good at investments and they're really clever and they really, really, they really know what to do with all this wealth. And what they do is they piss it up against the wall, as you say, and they create massive um, worldwide collapses in the economy. And as you said, the 1873 collapse led to the scramble for Africa. You can argue it led to the, the build up to the First World War. The crash of 1929 led to the rise of the Nazis. And the crash of 2008, we're living with the, in the, with the consequences of that as we speak, with, with global tensions, global conflict, and, and a massive shift in geopolitical um, power across, across the globe. These oh, these crashes the matter, right you know, right and the rise of the, right and the rise of fascism right. and authoritarianism across the globe. Fucking fascinating. I'd love to talk more about that one, but I want to move on because there's other really interesting myths here that uh, the book refers to. One is a really important one. I think it's it's a tough one. I I actually found it quite tough because it's one of those ones that seems to rely on measurements and metrics. And it's that myth number five, and it's one that always gets thrown back in your face by right wingers, particularly in that is that capitalism has lifted billions out of poverty in the last century. Um, and the issue there is, of course, is I suppose what metric or what measurement you use, Stuart, I'll come to you first, because um, they always throw, you know, this idea, well, th th here's the definition of poverty. This is how we measure it. And ergo, a billion people have been lifted out of poverty by capitalism since the Second World War or whatever. Um, what's wrong with that um, that definition? And why is why is that myth not true, that capitalism has indeed not lifted billions of people out of poverty? Uh, I think it's myth number seven, that one. Yeah, this is the one that Sean finds most surprising. Um, and most fascinating, I guess, to a certain extent. I don't want to get too much into the figures, but when you use the very basic World Bank $1.90 a day definition, that's wherever you get the figure. Now, it's a ridiculously low figure, and there are others that I talk about in the chapter. Which the $1.90 a day is the figure they use to suggest this is what people need to meet their basic needs. That's the basis of the claim that capitalism has lifted billions out of poverty. Now, you get into various definitions of what poverty is across different countries there. But $1.90 a day is painfully low. And even if you take it, then a significant number of them, I forget what the exact figure is, but probably over 800,000 are actually Chinese. And of the remainder, a huge number are Indian, because both those countries have been relatively successful in lifting people up over the last 20, 30 odd years. You can't really say China has done it through capitalism as we understand it. I remember having a conversation with a student of mine a while ago, um, a very wealthy young lady. Her father has a, some contract to supply bikes to the People's Republic of China from, from India. But proper lefty, went to Suez, and she said, you have to remember that the World Bank is fundamentally a capitalist institution and it exists to go ahead and sell and defend capitalism and act as apologists. So the figure is absurd. Uh, and whenever you look at the absolute numbers as well, despite the fact we've had serious economic growth since 1980, albeit uh, it's been less than it was in the, uh, the pre-neoliberal era, liberal era, you still have a significant increase in the absolute numbers of people in poverty. And this is why we have the refugee crisis right now. People are trying to get away from economic misery as well as political oppression. 
Yeah, sure. Can we, um, what do you think, Sean? What's your opinion on that particular myth? Can we thank capitalism for the last 80 years of, of success across the globe? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but the, uh, I, I think that this, this part of the book is, is really interesting. I, I find it, I find it interesting because there's a lot I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, it makes it clear that like, first of all, the metrics, we go by are totally inadequate in terms of understanding what poverty is and how many people are experiencing it. And when we try to define it as a person's ability to provide a basic standard of living for themselves and their families, you know, that should be the absolute mm -hmm. minimum definition of, of poverty. Uh, it, it's clear that if you take China out of the equation, um, the dial has barely shifted in terms of absolute poverty reduction. You can have a debate about whether China's capitalist or, and if so, what kind of capitalism it represents. But it, nonetheless, the, the fact is you take them out of the equation and the advanced capitalist world in the West has has barely shifted the dial over the past 40 years. And then you look at who has gained the most, and this is another important aspect of it, who has gained the most from capitalist growth over the last 40 years. It's an empirical reality that most of the gains in terms of income and wealth have gone to, gone to the richest cohort of people. Uh, but then um, a capitalist would say a rising tide lifts all boats. So yes, they may have benefited. Yes, they may have increased their, their their profits and their hold over assets. But that also drags up people from the bottom too. Well, the empirical reality is that the, the richest people on the planet have benefited the most. Um, and inequality, economic inequality, which is as important as poverty, has continued to rise over the past 40 years. And that's regardless how you measure it, whether you measure it, uh, between classes within a state or between the global north and the global south. And of course, that growing in economic inequality has huge social and political mm. implications. You know, and that, that, yeah, that, that inequality, crises. that inequality yeah. that exists within countries, also between countries and between regions of the world, is a, is a massive issue too, Stuart, isn't it? Because, to, I mean, in the book, you make a really interesting point that to eradicate poverty based on their own kind of metrics, global GDP would have to increase to 175 times its present size. In other words, you'd have to you know, produce 175 times more stuff and have it traded and have it bought and have it sold and have it across the globe in order to equalise the planet. And, and, and that's a problem too, isn't it? Because that obsession with growth or that growth metric means that we can never eradicate poverty, of course, because inequality is, is such that um, it would destroy what we have left of the, on the planet. I think it's a vitally important issue again, and it takes us back into the environmental problems we're having right now. If you just assume a global economic growth rate of 3% per annum, which seems to be in a, a level people are happy with, if you assume that across the globe, we double GDP in about 24, 25 years. And even if we do make some changes to the way we fuel our resources and we burn less fossil fuels, I'm not sure the planet could take that. All right, so yeah, we have to go ahead and get out of the idea of growth being the most important metrics. We have enough globally, we certainly have enough in Britain and Ireland for everybody to live well. So some of these degrowth agendas, it's a very uncomfortable term, degrowth, but decroissance, the French version of it, sounds a whole lot better. We have to start thinking about that from a variety of point of views. If you look at some of the figures regarding distribution here, I just dug them out here. Jason Hickel, who is a, a very good, interesting writer, he shows that between 16, 1960 and 2017, the average income gap between the developed countries and the rest has quadrupled. Of all the income generated by global GDP growth between 1999 and 2008, the poorest 60% of humanity received only 5%. The richest 40% received 95%. This is terrible in itself. It's unsustainable. And it leads to, like I say, the current refugee crisis that we're having. And the refugee crisis are also fueling the growth of the right. So everything is interconnected here. We have to think of this as, and one of the things I was quite pleased with the way the book turned out, rather than just debunk the myths, I think it gave an indication of how the system actually works and where the major fault lines in the system are. Yeah, Sean, you wanted to come in, mate? Yeah, I just have to throw this in. This, this got me thinking. This is another thing that Marx was largely right about, right? So in order for the minority in society, whether that's within a state or globally, to continue to accumulate capital, 
the living stand standards of the majority will logically have to decline, right? Mm -hmm. And that's materially in terms of their share of the wealth produced in society, and even more broadly in terms of their working and living conditions. So that's like just an inbuilt feature of how the capitalist mode of production works. It's it tends towards growing inequality, um, and that that's regardless of how how you look at it. So there's I think, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ahead, sure. I was just going to say to build on that point, a large part of what capitalism has achieved for a small number of people globally has been based on the centre's exploitation of the periphery. And I think that's a massively important thing to remember when you look at the chapter on international trade in this, which is by far the biggest chapter. But I think the, the fault lines in the system are shown in very stark aspects when you look at international trade. We live the lifestyle we have because we piss on Africa. Uh, we piss on a large part of the planet. When you look at what Africans produce, what they should be paid for it and what they are getting paid for it, it's a scandal and that's something which i think we need to recognize will come back and bite us on the ass yeah i'm glad you segued into that because that was my next and last myth oh, here because oh. um was, was myth number nine in the book which is the longest and it is really interesting because it goes to the very heart of um the global capitalist system um and it talks about you know the importance of the myth is free trade benefits everybody and should be expanded and it's a it's a it's a myth of course that's supported by large sections of the trade union movement and the labor movement of which we're all part and active in that somehow this benefits everyone that we should have free trade across the globe and free trade treaties and all we need to do is have a little uh, like a human rights section in the free trade treaty or some something about labor rights as a as a little you know, addendum to the fucking you know free trade treaty as if that is going to prevent the massive global exploitation that you uh, outline in the book so well particularly the the exploitation of the periphery of or of the, of by, by the core and it comes back to that idea that we talk a lot about globalization and that word appears all the time and lots on the left like globalization it's good for the world but if you just rephrase and return globalization sean i'll come to you first and just call it what it is which is imperialism you know that's what we mean globalization and that and, and free trade agreements are they not the driving force of imperialism is, is that is that not how imperialism expands across the globe and, and forces countries to you know in, in, into that into those networks into those circuits whether it's GATT and WTO or TPP or Theta or fucking NAFTA, it's, this is an imperialist project, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, imperialism will never change its spots, but uh, how it operates has changed slightly and. Imperialist forms of exploitation and expropriation um, take a mainly economic form these days. You know, they're instituted through free so-called free trade agreements. The terms of free, the un, uneven and unequal terms of free trade agreements and bilateral uh, trade agreements. And what what the result is is a net drain. Um, from countries of the global south uh, to uh, countries of the global north and to a small cohort of, of companies and individuals in the global north. And now that, what, that's, whether you, that's whether you look at it in terms of land, in terms of uh, labour, or, or in terms of, of natural resources. There's a net drain from that part of the world to the imperial core in the, in the global north. I can't find the figures, but Jason Hickel's done some work on this as well. Like, and I think he calculated it something ridiculous. Like, it goes to the hundreds of billions in terms of how much has been uh, extracted from the global north or from the global south through these uh, types of arrangements. And what these what these um, international free trade agreements do, of course, is they um, they remove, if you like, the 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 role of democracies in. In changing anything and challenging that power basis, don't they, Stuart? The, the whole the whole point of these international free trade agreements is that they kind of de-democratize nation states because states give over power to these massive free trade treaties, as you do when you join the eurozone or the European Union. You hand over, you know, power to um, supranational bodies, which is, which is then hard to, to get back. And there are various ways that that it that it does that. Of course, each free trade is slightly different. One of the things that the the um, book points out and goes into a little bit of. Uh, um, in depth on is, is of course the ISDS system which a lot of people don't know about we've talked about it before in other podcasts but it's an incredible little system isn't it the um, ISDS code tell us very quickly what an ISDS is and why they're important for maintaining that power imbalance they basically allow um, corporates to sue governments for um, 
for working to undermine their potential to make an awful lot of money. I give a couple of examples in there. I think one from El Salvador in particular, I talk about at some length because the particular company who's changed their name since, I can't remember, they felt the El Salvadorian government was diminishing their ability to make some more dough. The government had to fight the case and in the end they were successful to a certain extent, but it cost a fortune to do so. One of the things I was trying to, I was trying to write an introduction for the book and I was trying to look for a light motif, some kind of hook, and then it just came. It's corporate power. When you look at pretty much everything we talk about, every myth that we try and undermine, behind it you have corporate power and the intimate connection between corporates and governments and transnational institutions. You want to understand how the European Union works, its priorities. You look at the corporates that are connected to the the people that run the European Union, the governments and the Commission, etc. And the whole international trade setup is dedicated towards allowing corporates to make more profitability. What the ISDS is do is provide a vehicle whereby governments can not just sue, but actually the threat of governments doing something to undermine corporate profitability prevents them from doing it. So it's all about to facilitate corporate money. But these ISDS, I said what the ISDS means, it's the International State Dispute Resolution System yeah, or something yeah, like that, or something like that. But yeah, Sean, yeah. these these private courts is what they are basically, where private corporations can take national governments to court for taking actions against the potential profits of those major corporations, um, is an incredibly anti-democratic uh, structure, isn't it? Yeah, and that, that's it. You just had it on it. It's interfering with future profits, not even existing profits. It's interfering with the ability of a particular corporation to make profits in the future. Um, so, for example, if a if a state decides to uh, invest in state led green renewables, mm-hmm. for example, that potentially infringes on the profits of fossil fuel companies and under this system they have a case uh, to take against that government uh, to sue that government for their potential loss of profits and we're already seeing this through the energy treaty charter energy energy charter treaty that's what it's called yeah. there's 158 cases i think that have gone through this system already where corporations have sued national governments simply for uh simply for taking decisions that would potentially negatively affect the fossil fuel lobby. I mean, that's fucking shocking, isn't it? <laughs> when you think about it, that that's at the but that's at the heart. That's at, that's at the heart of that energy treaty. By the way, it's a we can do a podcast on that alone. When you hear the bullshit talked about the importance of the green transition and moving away from fossil fuels, mm-hmm. and yet all of the structures and all of the treaties that are being signed, seen, sealed, and delivered are going in exactly the opposite direction to that, Stuart. They're moving us into. I mean, they they they're. they're they're providing, you know, as Sean said for corporate welfare for corporations that are speculating and dealing in fossil fuels, and they're actually suing governments who are trying to move to, a, you know, into a green transition period. It's again gets back to corporate power, uh, the the breadth of it, the depth of it, the Inflation Reduction Act that Sean was talking about earlier. Uh, that was accepted by the American fossil fuel lobby because it actually guaranteed uh, Trump protection for them. That's mm. that's the way the system works. I dug out a great quote here from the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. They actually did say this quite recently. Early in our history, the U.S. had to deploy gunboat diplomacy or military intervention to protect private American commercial interests. ISDS is a more peaceful, better way to resolve trade conflicts between countries. So the ISDS is basically the new gunboat. We're not going to blow the fuck out of you, but we will sue you and destroy your ability to do anything else. And also, nobody else will invest. So that's how the system operates. And the fossil fuel industry remains massively powerful. When you look at the forthcoming COP meeting, that's going to be dominated again by fossil fuel interests. And I think the guy who is running it is also one of the more important people in the fossil fuel industry of the country. Yeah, the ISDS system is a really interesting part of the book. And it's a really interesting thing for people to get their heads around because it's not just that the corporates can take governments to to court. It's that they governments will... Li- 
kind of limit what they even think about they might do in the future because of the fear of being taken to court so it kind of limits thinking and it makes people become very unambitious about the kinds of changes we need to see the other thing i wanted to finish on because we are running out of time in the book which is really interesting in that free trade part of the book the myth about free trade is the role is of course the role of the eu particularly the role of the eu when it comes to africa because you yeah. go into some depth on that, and it's really interesting for people who do support the EU or people who uncritically or critically support it, whatever fucking definition you use to, when you look at the role and the relationship between the European Union and the entire African continent, it's fucking shocking, frankly. I mean, I was reading in the report, and I knew some of this, but I didn't know all of it in the detail that you go into, which is why it's useful, is that Africa imports um, 80% of its food, uh, which is the first thing. Oh, okay, and then and the European Union is the biggest exporter of foods to Africa um 20 billion a year or something you say um and then of course there's the economic partnership agreement the epa which is an agreement between european union and many african economies um tell me a little bit about the epa and why it's a form of neo-colonialism well no why it's actually just a form of fucking imperialism and people wonder and people wonder why there are failed states in africa and people wonder why there are fucking millions of people trying to get the fuck out of africa and across the mediterranean into europe you know and and europe uh, Europe has a relationship with Africa, which absolutely guarantees that those states will fail and force it, their populations to move to Europe. Why the fuck wouldn't they come to Europe? Tell us a bit about the EPA, Stuart, and I'll let my blood pressure calm down. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to keep the blood pressure light when you're talking about this. The EPA is basically the take that we will sell, and this is what imperialism did in the old days too, we will sell you our manufactured goods you will take all them this will prevent you from developing your own industry and you will continue to sell us the stuff that we need from you uh, the resources this is why africa has i think something like 13 percent of the world's population but 42 percent of the world's poor something like that the epas are i mean the brits have always done this and the european union has just taken the taken the gig what the brits did in the late 19th century to argentina and the ottoman empire you will keep on selling us your very cheap uh, agricultural products and we will sell you manufacturing stuff so you do not develop your own manufacturing industry we will continue to shaft you there is also something whereby the european union i think the germans are particularly bad at this they insist that say you're going to sell them coffee you sell them just coffee you will not do anything mm. like the processed coffee you will not do anything which adds the value and makes the money so it's just going to be the raw material all the stuff that makes the money adds the value will be done in the european union and this is all part of the epa the nigerians a couple of years ago said "Fuck off we're not going to go ahead and sign it now nigeria is big enough to say that other smaller countries can't afford to do so and again looking to the future this is where you think and to a certain extent you hope that this comes back and bites the ass given population uh, movements right now nigeria could have the same population as europe by the end of this century if not before and that's europe including turkey and russia as well so the future will hopefully be african and the africans will treat the rest of the world better than the europeans do have and we'll talk about this more during the forthcoming series on imperialism but that imperialistic mindset that we matter more and that our well-being matters a whole lot more than people in the periphery dictates epas and the whole structure of the international economic system yeah, I'll let you come on that one, Sean. The idea that the economic partnership agreement between the EU and African countries, I mean, African countries simply cannot compete, can they, as part of that partnership? I mean, it's a, it's a joke to use the term free trade when you talk about the relationship between the European Union and the African continent. Yeah, and especially when you factor in another element to this, which is the common agricultural policy, mm -hmm. right? Right, CAP subsidizes farmers within the European Union to the tune of hundreds of billions uh, to overproduce agricultural products, which are then dumped onto African markets uh, at a price below which you know African farmers can compete. So they're forced to buy European products and at the same time it destroys their livelihoods, it destroys their ability to be able to produce and sell their products, which they're more naturally suited to to, to growing, um, in in a way that would sustain their their livelihoods. So there's two as two major aspects. To this the the common agricultural policy is one of the most socially and environmentally destructive policies ever conceived by mankind, right? Yeah. And to to deliver any sense of 
social, economic and environmental justice on a global scale, it would have to be done away with. Also, yeah, I say that say well, that very quietly as I sit here in rural South Down in Ireland, <laughs> by the way, because every single one of my fucking neighbours will burn me out if I talk about getting rid of cap and getting rid of their Well, signals. it has to be replaced with something course, more yeah, just I'm and equitable kid. that supports regenerative farming within Europe and yeah. reduces the inequalities within the farming sector in Europe in places like, like Ireland. But the cap system as a whole has to go like, Stuart, last word from you before I finish I was this off today. Say, the cap system also um, shafts a large part of Africa, a large part of the planet, because you subsidise already well-off and relatively efficient agriculture. And think about what happens whenever fucking Ukraine joins it. You have all that cheap Ukrainian uh, wheat as part of cap. Uh, then you have a major problem for many farmers in Eastern Europe in particular. Already the Poles have expressed some anger about this, and it will further shaft the developing world as well. So I think the final world has, has to be something about cooperation. I was talking to a couple of people last week about sun or solar panels. If you buy a solar panel, it's almost certainly made in China with cheap Chinese labor and very cheap Chinese coal. The Chinese and other parts in the developing world, they need the money, so they're going to keep on burning the coal. But you need some cooperation whereby they can produce the stuff that we need, but they can do it using fossil, using fuel which doesn't destroy the environment. You need the cooperation internationally to solve that and other major problems. And all we're getting now with the Inflation Reduction Act, with decoupling, is America fighting to maintain its own number one position and hegemony. Yeah, and we're going to get on to that. Uh, we we keep promising this, but we've actually got a date in our mind. In the first week in January, we're going to sit together, the three of us, and we're going to record some podcasts on imperialism um, in the historical context, but also what imperialism looks and feels like um, in the 21st century. And we've touched a little bit upon it today, and some of that stuff's really interesting. can get a bit technical, but it's extremely important for us on the left to understand that's how the global um, system, the global world is structured. The core and the periphery still exists. So I'll finish with a really good quote that Stuart has in his book. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll put the book in the link so everyone to, can get their hands on it. And it's um, a book by Tom Burgess called The Looting Machine. Uh, and it's about the looting of Africa. Um, I'll just leave you with this quote. The looting machine has been modernized, where once treaties signed at gunpoint dispossessed Africa's inhabitants of their land, gold and diamonds. Today, phalanxes of lawyers representing oil and mineral companies with annual revenues in the hundreds of billions of dollars impose miserly terms on African governments and employ tax dodges to bleed profit from destitute nations. In the place of the old empires are hidden networks of multinationals, middlemen and African potentates. These networks fuse state and corporate power. They are aligned to no nation and belong instead to the transnational elites that have flourished in the era of globalization. Above all, they serve their own enrichment. You couldn't find a better description of imperialism in the 21st century than that. So get your hands on Tom Burgess's book, The Looting Machine, but also Stuart McGill's book here on the 10, 10 economic myths debunked. Folks, thanks very much for your contributions today. Really enjoyed that. Could have gone on for longer. Uh, thanks for listening and keep listening and we'll see you next time. Slang before. And that, as they say, is fucking that. Well done, lads. That was 40, just over 45 minutes. So that's good. Didn't want to go, I didn't want to go on too much longer than that because mm. that's, you know, keep it keep it between the rails. Why can't I get to pause recording, stop recording?